welcome to Coffee and Conservation, hosted by Dr. Beth Baker, Assistant Extension Professor in the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Aquaculture at Mississippi State University. From water and soil to habitat and food production, Dr. Baker and her guests discuss the necessity and complexity of conservation in the U.S. All right, welcome back to another edition of Coffee and Conservation. I am here with uh, a mentor and a boss, actually. <laughs> I'm used to saying friends and colleagues, but I guess, you know, he's he's that as well. But I'm here with Dr. Wes Berger, um, and he's the Associate Director of the University's Forest and Wildlife Research Center in Mississippi Agricultural and Forestry Experiment Station. Um, welcome. Glad to be here today, Beth. Thank you. Yes, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, and today we're talking quail conservation and the importance of private farm or private lands conservation, I should say. Um, which One of is, my favorite topics. I was going to say, yes, you have, and I'll just briefly share, in case folks are not aware of the world of quail conservation, um, it's not just an area that Dr. Berger has worked in, um, He's a leader in that area. Um, so in 2017 at the National Quail Symposium, he was uh, given an award of excellence as a career tribute in, in the field from the Tennessee-based National Bob White Conservation Initiative and Bob White Technical Committee. Um, he also is a Grisham, John Grisham Master Teacher here at Mississippi State University, holds the Dale Arner Professorship of Wildlife Ecology and Management. In 2013, he was named a fellow of the Wildlife Society, which is a Maryland-based international association, which is dedicated to excellence in wildlife stewardship through science and education. Um, he's done lots and lots of work with the Natural Resources Conservation Service around their um, national monitoring program for CP33, uh, which is Conservation Practice 33 for Bob White Quail. Um, authored many, many papers, given many presentations, um, and that's not the end of the list of awards, but I think our listeners get the point <laughs> that um, you've had an incredible career, and a lot of it has been based on quail conservation on private lands. So um, it's safe to say we have a true expert in the room this morning. Um, so for our listeners to kind of get a more intimate feel of your background, because that's, you know, our list of awards are one thing, but when I get, uh, when I get my friends in the studio, I want to hear more about how they came into the field. So can you give our listeners a brief history of how you came to work in conservation? Sure, Beth. I've got the greatest job in the world. Um, for 30 years, I don't think there's been a single day where I come into the office and I think, oh, I just don't want to be here. Right. And so um, conservation has been uh, a part of my core being my entire life. I grew up in southern Indiana. born in Kentucky, grew up in southern Indiana. Uh, my dad was an accountant, and my mom was a school teacher, but they were both <clears throat> avid outdoors people. We camped, we hiked, we backpacked, we canoed, we hunted, we fished, um, and all of that contributed to um, a conservation perspective. Um, but probably one of the most influential things uh, in shaping who I was to become was the summers that I spent on my grandfather's farm. He was uh, uh, named T.C. Rhodes. Everybody called him Red. <laughs> and so my grandfather Rhodes was uh, 
a small farmer on about 150 acres in western Kentucky, cattle, corn, and beans. And um, but more importantly, he was a, a conservationist and he was a bird hunter. And so I spent every summer on that farm. And growing up, I'd ride the tractor, plant mm-hmm. the crops, feed the cows. Um, and then in the fall and winter, we would hunt. And uh, I've got a picture on my desk um, when I was nine years old. And we're standing next to um, my dad's van. And it's <clears throat> my grandfather and myself in a pointer named Bruno and a Brittany named Lady. <laughs> And I'm holding my first quail. And my grandfather and I had bird hunted that day. First time I'd ever seen a bird dog work. First time I'd ever seen a covey of quail flush. Um, And on that first covey rise, we were hunting a a little bean field on my Aunt Gracie's farm. And the dogs went on point. We walked in, the covey came up, flew down the hedgerow, and I was nine years old. And I was carrying a BB gun. <laughs> and, and I threw that BB gun up and pulled the trigger, and miraculously a bird fell. And Literally a miracle. <laughs> yes. Well, not so much. My, my grandfather slapped me on the back and said, great shot. And, uh, of course, he had shot at the same time, and it was really his bird, but he let me claim the credit. But that one experience, and then I went on to bird hunt with him in, in other kinds of hunting many, mm-hmm. many times over the years. Um, but that experience with those dogs and that bird in that muddy bean field mm-hmm. uh, in that hedgerow really was seared in my memory. And, and it was literally that experience that made me interested in gallinaceous birds, mm-hmm. um, quail, pheasant, turkey, um, prairie chickens, um, and and linked it to conservation on the landscape. As a farmer and a hunter, he had uh, a strong conservation, a land ethic. And um, he had read out of Leopold, Sam County Almanac, mm-hmm. and, and we'd sit out in his yard under this pear tree and, and talk about conservation and talk about what it meant to have a land ethic. And so... That hunting experience and that perspective of a farmer yeah. um, conservationist really shaped kind of my perspective. And so then I went to undergrad at Murray State University in Western Kentucky in wildlife ecology. Got to work for several federal agencies in Illinois and Kentucky and Indiana. Um, but when I finished with that undergrad, I was looking for a, a graduate opportunity working with quail. And um, there just weren't any at that time. It was kind of a lull, and quail are, are one of the most studied species in the world, literally. Um, uh, Leop, or not, Herbert Stoddard um, started uh, the first major investigation in quail in the early 1900s in um, northern Florida. And, and really laid the foundation for what we know about quail today with his monograph, Ecology and Management, of Bob White. Um, but during that mid-80s period, there just wasn't a lot of quail work going on. But I had the opportunity to go to uh, University of Missouri, Columbia, Missouri, and work on prairie chickens. And population ecology of prairie chickens, nest um, survival, adult survival, brood survival, that was the focus of the study. And prairie chickens are really just a big quail. 
and uh, they're a galliform. Describe them. <laughs> they're a galliform, um, much like quail, and so I was went and did that project and and loved it. Had a great um, experience with that, but I still wanted to get back to quail, and so toward the end of that master's, I wrote a grant to do a large-scale population ecology study on Bob White. As a master's student. As a master's student, right. Impressive. Um, And it was funded uh, for nearly a half a million dollars over the life of the study with Missouri Department of Conservation because they were interested in the topic. And that was 1985, and the 85 Farm Bill had just been passed. And... um, it was so, an important farm bill. It was the first farm bill that, um, in a systematic, intentional fashion, that created a large-scale set-aside program, cropland diversion program. It wasn't the first cropland diversion program, but right. it was the first large-scale one specifically dedicated to conservation. At that time, it was just soil conservation and water conservation. It was mm-hmm. only highly erodible lands. But the outcome of it was nearly 30 million acres of permanent herbaceous and, and woody cover put on the ground over the U.S. And so natural so, landscapes like that, prairies, um, forested areas. Exactly. So you're talking about, um, and just for our listeners that are not familiar with conservation, setting aside land as opposed to um, using it for mixed use. Sure, that's exactly right. And the purpose at that time, <clears throat> this was during the 1980 farm crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, production exceeded demand, and so prices were low. A lot of producers were going out of business. And at the same time, erosion was a real problem on the landscape. Mm-hmm. We were cropping land that was not well suited, and we call it highly erodible land. And so that initial um, 1985 version of the Conservation Reserve Program was designed to take highly erodible land out of production um, and put it in a permanent conserving cover crop Mm -hmm. and then leave it out of production for 10 years and in the midwest virtually all of that was grassland it was put into grassland cover in the southeast um, a substantive amount went into trees Mm -hmm. pine trees or in bottomland hardwood systems hardwood trees but regardless the intent was really twofold to reduce commodity production to kind of balance that supply and demand situation. And then secondly, to conserve soil. And later on, water quality was added as Mm -hmm. a goal of the program. And then ultimately, uh, in the early 90s, wildlife habitat was added as a goal. But but back in 85, we saw at that point that this was going to have a big impact on wildlife populations in the Midwest. And so the project I worked on in Missouri was focused on evaluating the impact of landscapes that had a significant component of conservation reserve grasslands. How did that affect survival, habitat use, nest success, nest site selection, brood ecology um, for Bob White? Which are, and we've had a, another segment, so if listeners aren't familiar with Bob White Quail, you can go and look up um, Conservation for the Quail Obsessed with Mark McConnell that he was on. But if you haven't listened to that, um, Bob White Quail are a really important indicator species on the landscape, too, which is also what makes them a valuable research um, model because they indicate health of the entire ecosystem, um, not just specifically for folks that like to hunt quill, which is a a substantial amount of people, but 
uh, as an important indicator of ecosystem health. So another reason why it's valuable to uh, study them on the landscape. Sure, and, and bobwhite are dependent on, they're an early successional species. So they're dependent on annual weeds, perennial grasses, native perennial grasses, and shrubby cover. And so those are the very types of cover that occur during the first 10 years after you take ground out of production and allow it to succeed. And so there was a lot of basis to anticipate that the Conservation Reserve Program would produce benefits for bobwhite, as well as other grassland species like henslow sparrows and dick thistles and grasshopper sparrows and meadowlarks and other bird species. Mm -hmm. And so we were right at the front end of the 85 Farm Bill, the most conservation-focused farm bill that we'd ever had, and gave us an opportunity to um, evaluate uh, some of the environmental benefits of that program from the onset. And it was really that experience working on quail in the 85 Farm Bill that got me interested in working lands conservation and in collaborating with uh, USDA um, at a national level to evaluate the environmental benefits of farm bill type conservation programs. And for the last 30 years, the work I've done has had that common thread through it is how do we, within a working lands context landscape, how do we um, manage those lands to both produce the food, fiber, and fuel mm -hmm. that our society needs, the um, profitability that the producer needs, and then the environmental services that we're all dependent on. Things like pollination, carbon sequestration, water purification and cycling, and wildlife habitat. Yep, absolutely. And that's the, 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 the history and the evolution of your career there and this, the picture you've painted at the end of, of conservation on many of the landscapes in the U.S. and how important the Farm Bill is to that and what it looks like on the ground is exactly where uh, is exactly the picture I wanted you to, to paint because we, we do have a number of folks out there, maybe even some listeners, that when they picture conservation, they're probably in some cases only picturing threatened and endangered species or very exotic ecosystems like the Amazon or panda bears or things that you would see on Nat Geo or on TV when in reality conservation in the U.S. is a little bit different. Um, we do have a ton of different ecosystems. Many of them are beautiful, uh, but we also have a need to, as you mentioned, produce food, produce fiber, um, just have the basic economies and, and raw materials that we, that we live with. And so conservation doesn't always look like setting aside land. In some cases it does, but in other cases, it's that um, working lands conservation that you mentioned, which for, if people aren't familiar with that term, that's when you're producing food or fiber on a piece of land, but also um, integrating conservation within that. So, you, so you're producing dual benefits there to society, no less. Um, and so when public lands are managed by a large government agency, like public lands out west, um, how different is it to get conservation on the ground for a private landowner, even if they're fully bought in? Well, that's a great question, Beth. And um, I want to reiterate the importance of those private lands. So as a nation, we have conservation goals. And those goals are expressed in legislation like the Endangered Species Act. And at the end of the day, what the Endangered Species Act says is that we as a culture and a society value every species. 
they have a place and a value, and we're going to do whatever, whatever we can to make sure that our actions don't lead to the permanent extirpation of some other species. And then we have many other acts and laws like the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, that express our, um, our values about the environment. And so collectively, that body of, of law says that we're going to try to be good stewards of our land, recognizing that we're dependent on that um, to, uh, to produce clean water, clean air, all the environmental services. But we're also dependent on that to produce the food and the fiber and the fuel that we depend on um, as an economic society. Um, right. And so private lands and, and agricultural conservation in particular aren't really as sexy <laughs> as what you might see on Undoubtedly. Nat Geo or on <laughs> Wild Kingdom or on mm-hmm. uh, any of the TV shows. And so a lot of times people, they recognize that agriculture as a industry has contributed to conversion of NATO ecosystems like eastern tallgrass prairie, bottomland hardwood, longleaf forest. And so people are quick to recognize the, um, the environmental degradation associated right. with agriculture, but they're not so quick to recognize um, the importance of agricultural landscapes for conservation. And so if we think about the contiguous lower 48 landmass, 71% of that landmass is in private, non-federal ownership. Almost 50% of that landmass is dedicated to agriculture, mm-hmm. pasture, rangeland, row crop, um, or forests. And so half of our land base is in the hands of farmers, ranchers, and non-industrial private forest landowners. And those people are, uh, they own that land for the purpose of producing a livelihood, but they're also stewards of that land. Incredibly so, and and underestimated. Exactly. And there's not a farmer or a forest landowner on the planet that wants to contribute to environmental degradation. That's not their goal. Mm -hmm. They want to be stewards, and they are stewards. Um, At the same time, they have to uh, be profitable, to stay in business, and to retain that ownership. Mm -hmm. And so from my perspective, federal agencies have the entire staff of the federal government, the resources behind them. They can spend years developing strategic plans and um, and put... And all the mat- equipment to put those plans exactly. on the ground. Right. right. Um, and they've got a responsibility to do that. In federal lands, public lands, and, and, uh, and other lands that are committed to conservation are... are critically important to the preservation of species. But we can't do all the conservation that needs to be done on state and federal lands alone. Right. Again, half the landscape is in agricultural ownership. And if we want to accomplish 
broad conservation objectives, whether it's quail populations or mollusk populations in streams or clean water or reduction in hypoxia, if we want to accomplish those big goals, it has to be done on private lands. And that means working with private landowners and understanding their economic objectives and their productive production objectives as well as their stewardship objectives. And that's that's the intersection of agriculture and conservation. And that's really where I've found a place over the last 30 years um, to, to operate and to practice my craft. And you mentioned that um, we can't just set aside um, everything mm-hmm. for conservation. And there's a, a kind of paradigm called land sparing versus land sharing. And land sparing means you set it aside, put a fence around it, and that's your conservation land. Land sharing means is a a broader perspective that says we're going to manage our fields and forests and waters to produce commodities and products that we all depend on. But at the same time, we're going to integrate into those production systems conservation practices that support those ecosystem functions Mm -hmm. and those environmental services that we all depend on. And it's the land sharing model that um, really fits the working lands um, of our agriculture and and non-industrial forest landowners. Right. And when you said it's when you said it's not that sexy, it's you're totally right. And in fact, it's subtle. Because when you're working conservation into agricultural lands, it might be a change in practice, which isn't something you actually see on the ground. It's just something the farmer does different, um, like a management practice. So if someone was visiting a farm, like you mentioned, if they're not if they're not in tune to what conservation looks like in these working farms, they're just going to see a farm, not the subtle drainage management changes they've made or subtle soil management changes they've they've made. Um, so it does become even harder to communicate that to the general public that there is a ton of conservation going on here, um, right? While we're also producing commodities on the landscape. Um, another misconception, I think, is that when we have public lands or lands actually set aside, that there's no management happen- happening there because we're still manipulating that landscape to, to manage it for the ecosystem that, we, we, uh, that was originally there that we want to be there. It's not like we're not touching a land at all when it goes into a public land or a, a federally owned land or, or something of that manner where it's set aside. Even if it's private landowners setting aside land, it's still usually managed to some extent. Is that correct? Well, it has to be managed. We think about things like the rainforest or the eastern tallgrass prairie or the longleaf forest that used to cover the entire coastal plain. And we think, well, for tens of thousands of years, that was just there and it was static. Well, that's just not true. Natural systems are dynamic, and they're created and they're maintained by natural processes. And very often those processes, they're periodic, meaning that they happen repetitively over time. Um, and very often they're 
catastrophic. We'd call them a natural disaster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're things like, right, from a human perspective, we view yeah. them as a natural disaster. But take a bottom land hardwood forest, for example. That's, that's a forest that occurs in a floodplain of a stream or a river. And that forest and the conditions that support that forest and maintain it are created by periodic flooding sometimes flooding on an almost catastrophic scale, like what we've seen this year. The prairies in the Midwest, the eastern tallgrass prairie, were created by the intersection of a rainfall gradient moving from east to west with diminishing rainfall as you go farther west that created um, a difficult environment for trees to live in. Mm -hmm. In combination with a natural fire regime that came out of the west and was carried by uh, those winds mm -hmm. blowing west to east. And so it was really the combination of arid soil conditions and periodic fire that created this eastern tall grass prairie, which is really um, kind of the ecotone between the eastern deciduous forest that started up in about Illinois, Missouri, mm -hmm. Kentucky, and the, the western grasslands. And if you think about that ecotone, it was really um, kind of a dynamic moving edge over time that was uh, with fire would be pushed back to the east, and then in the absence of fire with increased rainfall would move to the west. And um, But it was that fire, that natural process, that created and maintained it. So even when we set aside lands and dedicate those, commit those, as a national forest or a national fish and wildlife refuge or um, a uh, any kind of reserve, we can't just put a fence around them and walk away. Mm -hmm. um, because we have, through human activities, we've interrupted those natural processes, we have to intervene with management to simulate those natural processes. So that might mean managed hydrological regimes in a bottomland hardwood. We call that a green tree reservoir, where we can manipulate water levels in a bottomland hardwood and intentionally flood it and create wintering waterfowl habitat, for example, or, um, or stimulate regeneration of um, seedlings in that bottomland hardwood forest. We use prescribed fire all the time. Right. Systems like um, pine grasslands, longleaf wiregrass systems, or longleaf little blue stem systems in the southeast are fire dependent. Prairies in the Midwest are fire dependent. We're beginning to understand just how dependent um, upland hardwood forests in the uh, the Midwest and in the Mid South, like Tennessee, Kentucky, mm -hmm. Missouri. Um, those systems were even dependent on fire. And so in the absence of those unconstrained natural processes, in order to maintain that system, we have to intervene and implement simulated natural processes like prescribed fire. We call that management. Right. And I, I suspect because with most things, it can always, you know, there's two sides to it. So I'm sure if there's listeners from out west, uh, the way we're able to control fire here in the Midwest to Mid-Southeast, um, just based on it not being massive forests, the m more moist conditions, it's far different than 
when a fire out breaks out in the West. So just to just to um, recognize that difference for our listeners there. That sure. We're talking about different ecosystems with this fire. Um, and so the, the way we can control fire in, in a managed area is far different than a wildfire. Sure. And I call that good fire, bad fire. Right. <laughs> and so fire is a natural process in many ecosystems from sagebrush or rangelands to grasslands to pine grasslands. Fire in the arid west behaves um, much more extremely Mm -hmm. than it does um, in the southeast where we've got more soil moisture, lower fuel loads, um, uh, lower temperatures. And so prescribed fire is an important tool across the continent. Um, It's much easier to implement in some places than in others. And lack of fire in fire-dependent systems has actually exacerbated the um, occurrence and severity of catastrophic fire. And so as fuel loads build up uh, because of fire exclusion. And if you do have a wildfire. Then when you do, when you have a wildfire, not if you, when you have a wildfire, um, those fires behave much more um, extreme. And so that's why the combination of dry conditions and hotter temperatures associated with climate change and a history of fire exclusion um, in much of the West has created these conditions, these fuel conditions, where when you have an ignition, you get this extreme fire behavior that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Okay, I've got one last question for you here. Um, you know, even even the most conservation-minded landowners, uh, conservation isn't always is never uh, free. Uh, it still takes a good m- amount of resources, access to information, let alone um, money, time, all of those different things. Um, but s- so many private landowners still undertake that anyway because they feel that it is, the, you know, they want to be environmental stewards. They feel that it's part of their responsibility. And, you know, just to, to make it really clear for our listeners too, who are the beneficiaries of that conservation on the ground. That's a really important point, Beth, and that's something that throughout the body of research and um, and technology transfer of extension we've done, we've always tried to recognize and, and address. And I, I like to think about it in this way. Every time a landowner commits resources, whether it's land or whether it's effort or whether it's diesel and a tractor to run a practice, Um, Every time they commit resources to conservation, that's resources that they're taking away from something else. Mm -hmm. By doing that conservation act, by committing that acreage to a conservation practice, they have lost the opportunity to do something else with it. So in economic terms, we call that direct and, and indirect costs. So I put in a conservation practice, I have to buy seed or diesel, that's a direct cost. When I commit this land to um, this conservation practice and I'm not raising crops on it, that's an indirect cost. We call that an opportunity cost. And so the cost falls on the private landowner, but who are the beneficiaries, as you ask? The beneficiaries are all of us, Mm -hmm. society at large. That landowner is producing clean water, clean air, pollination services, carbon sequestration, soil building, 
Um, Improved biodiversity. Yeah, wildlife habitat, wildlife populations. He's producing a public good at a private cost. And it's that economic asymmetry that makes it hard for producers sometimes to implement conservation. And so that's why conservation delivery, natural resource professionals working with private landowners to help them understand and adopt conservation practices, it's critically important for that resource professional to understand that economic asymmetry. And then to help that producer find ways to offset those direct and indirect costs. Um, and one of the best ways to do that is through um, federal farm bill conservation programs mm-hmm. because many of those programs provide a cost share to help address the direct costs. And so a 50, 75, 90% cost share of the cost of establishing and maintaining the mm-hmm. practice. But some of them also provide an incentive payment And an incentive payment is a payment to either encourage you to do something that you wouldn't do otherwise or to encourage you to not do something you would have done. And so an incentive payment addresses that opportunity cost. If the landowner takes that ground out of production and plants a native grass or pine trees on it, then they're giving up the opportunity to raise soybeans on it. And so an incentive payment addresses that opportunity cost. And then some of the farm programs also provide... Um, an easement payment. And an easement payment is a compensation to give up certain future rights. And so whether those are developmental rights or cropping rights or, um, or mining rights, an easement payment says for this compensation, I will either for some prolonged period, 10, 20, 30 years, or in perpetuity, give up those developmental rights. Regardless of whether it's cost share or an incentive or an easement payment, if we expect private landowners to produce public goods at a private cost, we need to find ways to, uh, to address that economic asymmetry. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So much good information in this. I'm going to try to link it back up to our, we have another Farm Bill uh, podcast, if you're not familiar with the Farm uh, the farm Bill um, Dr. Mark McConnell and I went through all the different kind of primary farm bill programs, the whole history of the farm bill too. So um, I'll link that one up in the in the show notes if I can uh, for those of you that want to go back and listen to that one. But I just wanted to thank Dr. Berger for coming on today. He's going to be back to talk nutrient reduction um, and more about the importance of on-farm conservation. So make sure that you tune in to the next episode as well. But thank you, Dr. Berger. Thank you. As always, you can find more information on our website or in the show notes after the show. And we always want to acknowledge and thank our primary sponsor, the Mississippi Natural Resources Conservation Service, for their support of this podcast. Thanks for joining us for Coffee and Conservation. To find out more about the topics discussed, visit the REACH website at reach.msstate.edu or the Mississippi State University Extension Service website at extension.msstate.edu. Dot edu.